0: Now you talk about terror. Welcome to another podcast from the Chris Hedges Report. I'm Chris Hedges, and you can find more of my work at chrishedges.substack.com. John F. Kennedy's last battle, cut short by his assassination, was the effort to build a sustainable peace with the Soviet Union. Jeffrey Sachs, professor of economics at Columbia University, in his new book, To Move the World, chronicles the campaign by Kennedy from October 1962 to September 1963 to curb the arms race and build ties with his Soviet counterpart, Nikita Khrushchev. Sachs looks at the series of speeches Kennedy gave to end the Cold War and persuade the world to make peace with the Soviets. Kennedy implemented the Partial Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, in 1963. But Kennedy's vision was not shared by many cold warriors in the establishment, including some within his administration and especially within the military. Joining me to discuss To Move the World, JFK's quest for peace is Professor Jeffrey Sachs. I want to begin with the Cuban Missile Crisis because this is a moment that you write about in your book, uh where Kennedy is battling in particular the military figures like Curtis LeMay who was the head of the air force who uh want to engage in a hot war to essentially bomb Cuban missile bases and i believe even soviet ships uh and and uh, and uh, this i think uh, kind of precipitated the uh change uh that came about within Kennedy
1: Let me say first what a pleasure it is to be with you and uh, how good it is to talk about uh, these issues on their 60th anniversary because they are completely alive today in the context of uh, the war in Ukraine as well, where uh, the U.S. and Russia are in effect uh, at war. And uh, I'm afraid our leaders are not learning the lessons that Kennedy learned and espoused. I think uh, even before the Cuban Missile Crisis, it's worth saying that Kennedy came into office in January 1961 intent on peace, but found himself at the brink of nuclear annihilation uh, just a, a year and a half afterwards. And that was not only shocking, uh, but uh, rather a sign of how extraordinarily Dangerous the world was and continues to be. So, Kennedy came in in January 1961, not aiming for war, but aiming for negotiation and peace. And remember, in his inaugural address, he had the famous line let us never negotiate out of fear, but let us never fear to negotiate. And he knew the dynamics of how things can get out of hand. Uh, He understood that the world was dangerous and he was going to avoid it. And yet the first year was a massive debacle because the CIA came to him and said, Mr. President, now you have to implement the invasion of Cuba. And he had uh, serious doubts about it, but like most presidents and certainly most presidents in their first months, he kind of went along and said, okay, uh, uh, you can do it, but I'm not going to give air cover. And some flaky uh, set of decisions from the CIA and Kennedy had them go forward. And of course, the Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba was uh, itself a debacle, a disaster. Uh, It led to a horrible interchange with Khrushchev, who wrote in a private channel to Kennedy, uh, stop this piracy of uh, people in your government. And Kennedy wrote back brazenly, no, it's not my government. This is uh, independent of the United States. And Khrushchev wrote back in effect, don't lie to me like that, Mr. President. I want to
0: stop you there because you write in the book about two times the Kennedy administration lied to the Soviets and how uh, destructive that was. Uh, to building relationships?
1: Actually, the the first lie came when uh, the Soviet Union shot down a CIA spy plane, the U-2 spy plane with Gary Powers, just on the eve of what was supposed to be a summit between Eisenhower and Soviet uh, uh, Party Chairman Nikita Khrushchev. And uh, the CIA lies for a living. We know this. Uh, But it lied to the president of the United States also saying, Mr. President, don't worry. They can't shoot down the spy plane. It's too high. And if they do shoot down the spy plane, it's designed to disintegrate. And if it doesn't disintegrate anyway, the pilot is going to take his cyanide pill. There's no way anything uh, can happen to embarrass you. And of course they shoot down the spy plane. They get the wreckage. They get the pilot alive, Gary Powers. They don't announce that. Uh, they say we have been spied upon, uh, and, uh, Down to plane without revealing those details. And Eisenhower comes out and says, uh, No, 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 this is a a weather craft that went off course from Turkey. And then the Soviets reveal we have the fuselage, we have the pilot uh, who has told us about his spy mission, direct, blatant lies. Then, soon after this, comes the direct, blatant lies of the Bay of Pigs. It's dangerous, and this is the CIA, by the way, and it's the CIA till today, in my view. Uh, it is uh, lying and unaccountable uh, and uh, and and really uh, never called to task for these lies because the public doesn't know them, doesn't understand what's going on. But from the Soviet U.S. point of view, within months of the Kennedy administration, the, the, this air was poisoned. And there was one other thing that was uh, absolutely precipitating all of this, which was, and very fundamental and completely never discussed in, in America almost at all. But there had been no peace treaty at the end of World War II. And the Cold War emerged, in fact, over a bitter dispute between the Soviet Union and the United States about the future of Germany. The Soviet Union had lost more than 20 million people. In the war, and did not want to see German remilitarized. The United States, on the other hand, decided that the three occupying occupied regions from the western side—the U.S., uh, French, and British regions—would form a single new federal republic of Germany. The uh, remaining uh, fourth part, the Soviet occupied part, would become the uh, German Democratic Republic, the GDR. But the Western side would become the bulwark of a new military alliance, NATO, and it would be remilitarized. And the Soviet Union said, no, we just lost more than 20 million people. Now, within a few years, you're remilitarizing. Well, of course, the United States never listened, never negotiated. And at the end of the 1950s, Took another step. Eisenhower was flirting with the idea maybe we should just give our allies uh, control over nuclear weapons as well so we can uh, reduce uh, the US uh, troops uh, numbers in Europe. Uh, uh, Eisenhower was very frugal, he was a fiscal conservative, and he wanted to bring troops home and use uh, the nuclear shield. And so there was, at the end of the 1950s, uh, lots of talk about nuclear sharing. And this was freaking out the Soviet Union also. And the United States doesn't know how to talk to anybody. There's no diplomacy. There are mortal enemies. There's no one to negotiate. And so the situation by the time Kennedy came in was completely fraught. Then came the Bay of Pigs. Then Khrushchev said, uh, okay, we need to teach Americans a bit of their uh, own uh, lessons. We'll put missiles in Cuba. And uh, Khrushchev had a quite remarkable exchange with Andrei Gromyko's foreign minister. Gromyko said, no, what war? And Khrushchev said, no, not war. Just basically teach these Americans about their arrogance. They have missiles in Turkey. We're going to put missiles in Cuba. Nothing about war. But of course, everything immediately spiraled out of control when the missile placements were discovered and the subterfuge uh, that uh, the Soviets uh, were using to place the missile systems in place. And it was like the subterfuge of the United States doing what it did on its side. Things get out of hand. And as soon as Kennedy saw uh, the uh, U-2 spy plane over Cuba, taking uh, these uh, pictures of missile sites, He convened an executive committee, XCOM, and uh, it was almost unanimous, well, we got to shoot down these sites. uh, We have to take them out before they can be deployed. Uh, And it was unanimous, essentially, uh, that there needed to be uh, an immediate uh, war. And the Joint Chiefs were told to go off and plan the Military campaign against Cuba? Would it be an air campaign? Would it just be to take out the sites? How many troops would be needed, and so forth? Kennedy, interestingly, to make a very long story short, had uh, lunch by coincidence with Adlai Stevenson, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, on the first day of the Cuban Missile Crisis when he Kennedy had seen the pictures, and and Adlai Stevenson said to uh, Kennedy, "Well." of course you need diplomacy to end this and, you know, exchange uh, the missiles with the Turkish missiles. Kennedy was shocked because no other advisor had said anything about diplomacy. It was basically unanimous for a military approach, which, by the way, almost surely may be too strong, although I'm not sure it is, but most likely would have led to nuclear annihilation because our doctrine was that if we were attacked by a nuclear weapon we would give a full uh, full response uh, by the way full meaning not only the soviet union but eastern and central europe china hundreds of millions of people killed and now we learned afterwards uh, from the nuclear winter maybe all of humanity perishing from starvation afterwards But Stevenson laid the idea of maybe a negotiated settlement. Well, to make a long story short, as people know, Kennedy really almost alone, though, with this hint from Stevenson and then with his brother Robert uh, pushing and Ted Sorensen pushing and a few others pushing, turned the tide over a few days that don't do something precipitous. Let's try to figure out what's in Khrushchev's mind. And Kennedy came to realize because he had people like the uh, the, the Air Force head, uh, Curtis LeMay, who just wanted nuclear war, it seems, or first strike against the Soviet Union, uh, that he was surrounded by a lot of hotheads who could end the world. And he realized Khrushchev probably was as well. And the two of them came to realize, we better tamp this down. And they did. And they agreed on a deal of this removal of missiles, both from Cuba and from Turkey. The big mistake Kennedy made, and I always think it's unfair to call it a mistake because he saved the world. So you get a lot of credit for that. But the mistake he made was insisting that the deal be secret so that it looked to the American people like he had simply faced down the Soviet Union and they had backed away because it wasn't known that the removal of the American missiles were part of an exchange. And that wasn't known for decades, actually. Well, just to come to the book.
0: Let, let, me, let me just stop you there because on, on, right in the preface, and I didn't know this, you talk about once that machinery begins to be put in place, a human error can trigger uh, a, a nuclear catastrophe. You, you write one Alaska-based U.S. Air Force pilot had not gotten the message. This was not to, uh, to send flights over Cuba. And after taking off to collect air samples to check on Soviet nuclear testing, the pilot had become disoriented and inadvertently flown his plane into Soviet airspace. Soviet fighter jets scrambled to intercept the U-2, while due to the high alert status prompted by the crisis, the U.S. planes sent to escort it back to base were armed with nuclear warheads and had the authority to fire.
1: Yes. And uh, actually, uh, that was one of the episodes that brought us to the brink of nuclear annihilation but there was one even more dramatic which was that after the agreement was reached between kennedy and khrushchev there was a disabled submarine in the caribbean that was part of a squadron and it was the one in that squadron that carried nuclear tipped torpedoes and when that disabled sub rose Normally, the uh, uh, U.S. might drop depth charges uh, on the submarine to get it, to force it to rise. But a jackass, I think is the right technical term, dropped live hand grenades uh, as he was uh, flying over this rising submarine. And the uh, skipper thought, our sub is under attack. There must be a war.
0: Russian submarine.
1: Russian, Sorry, Russian submarine. That was my point. Disabled Russian submarine. Excuse me, and uh, they thought they were under attack, and that there must be a war at the surface. It was disabled and out of communication, and so the uh, the, the, the uh, captain uh, of, of the vessel ordered uh, that the nuclear tip submarine be loaded into the torpedo bay and uh, that it be fired. And if it had been fired under U.S. nuclear doctrine, being attacked by a nuclear weapon, including a nuclear-tipped torpedo, under U.S. doctrine would have launched that full-scale response that would have destroyed humanity. And the order to fire was countermanded at the last moment by virtue of the fact that there happened to be a Soviet party official who was senior to the captain of the vessel, who said, "I don't think it's a good idea. We we should rise uh, without firing." And they did, and uh, it turned out there wasn't a war on the surface, and there wasn't a need to launch the torpedo. We came within a second of ending the world, and that was after the agreement had been reached between uh, the USSR and the United States. And Martin Sherwin, the late historian who now people know as uh, the person who wrote, co wrote the great book, American Prometheus, uh, on J. Robert Oppenheimer, wrote this story in his wonderful last uh, book before he passed away, Gambling with Armageddon, which is a history of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Absolutely phenomenal.
0: As is American Prometheus. And uh, they're both great books. He wrote that with Kai Bird, of course. Uh, You can visit that submarine. I think it's in San Francisco. I I did The Russian submarine is a museum. Uh, So Kennedy walks away from this horrified at how close the world came uh, to nuclear Armageddon. But he also walked away with a deep distrust of the military. Uh, And I want to talk about the decision to give this speech, which I had not read in full until I read it in your book, and then went and listened to it, it it has to be one of the most courageous uh, acts by a politician. Uh, you know, you could argue perhaps since anything FDR did, uh, it, it it and it's it's utterly remarkable. And and what's frightening or disturbing is that I can't see any political figure giving a speech like that. Uh, again. Uh, So let's talk about how Kennedy changed and what he set out to do. And of course, it was all cut short by his assassination in November of 1963.
1: I think, first, it's fair to say that uh, being president of the United States is a tough job. Uh, And uh, it's impossible to do right in the early days and early years because you don't get it. And our security state in the United States, which was created by the National Security Act of 1947, which created a secret security state and a private army of the United States called the CIA, which is one half its function because it does intelligence and it does private warfare of the United States. And the whole apparatus is secret and largely out of control. And it is absolutely out of control by any public understanding or scrutiny or accountability or congressional oversight today as it was in the early 1960s well kennedy came in with a lot of energy and idealism and brilliance and he stumbled terribly in the first year with the cuban uh, with the uh, bay of pigs cuban invasion and then in the second year the near disaster of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And my view is he had the potential for greatness at the beginning, and by his third year, he had become a magnificent politician and statesman of the first order, one of our truly great presidents. Not so much in the first two years, although the potential was there. But the growth that came through this set of trials was extraordinary already after the Bay of Pigs, Kennedy was so disturbed by the CIA that he was beside himself about uh, how they had led the U.S. and his administration and himself personally into this awful debacle. He didn't trust the CIA After the Cuban Missile Crisis and after hearing people like Curtis LeMay even essentially calling Kennedy a traitor for not launching the war or a coward uh, and feeling all of this pressure for war, he was profoundly disturbed and profoundly moved and profoundly scared at how fragile the world was. And he was determined to do something in 1963.
0: And he. Let me just interject. He fired Dulles and he fired Bissell. So he actually took on the CIA establishment uh, and triggered deep animus. Uh, And I I want you, as you go on, to talk about this speech. But one of the things I found fascinating from your book is how few people informed about what what it was he was about to say. And we have about nine minutes left, so I want to make sure we talk about the content of what he said.
1: So Kennedy wanted to say to the American people, peace is possible, even with the Soviet Union, even with the other side. And the whole content of the speech is they are human beings like we are. They want to live. They want to protect their children. They want to have a future. And this speech is unbelievable. Because it's the only foreign policy speech I know of anywhere where it is not telling the other side what to do, not making threats, not reveling in glory, not saying we are number one, not saying they are evil, but saying to the American people, we need to reconsider our own position. And remember, today we're told every day by the completely irresponsible, reckless, and ignorant mass media like the New York Times, I'm going to say, because it's terrible, and like the Washington Post and others, there's no one to talk to, there's no one to negotiate with over Ukraine. And in the Cold War in 1963, it was even more like that. The Cuban Missile Crisis had just occurred. Could you even imagine negotiating? with the Soviet union and Kennedy's whole message is we can negotiate. They want the same things. They too will abide by treaties. As long as those treaties are also in their interest and they can be relied upon to abide by treaties that are in their interest. And also in our interest, there is a benefit of cooperation. This is rational. In fact, the pursuit of peace is the rational end of rational men, says President Kennedy. I,
0: I just want to read a couple sections because it is an absolutely remarkable, and as you point out, through Sorenson beautifully uh, elegiac and, and uh, you know just gorgeously written, but these are some of the things, I just I want to read three short sections. I speak of peace, this is Kennedy, as the necessary rational end of rational men. I realize that the pursuit of peace is not as dramatic as the pursuit of war, and frequently the words of the pursuer fall on deaf ears, but we have no more urgent task. And then he says, so let us not be blind to our differences, but let us also direct attention to our common interests and to the means by which those differences can be resolved. And if we cannot end now our differences, at least we can help make the world safe for diversity. For in the final analysis, our most basic common link is that we all inhabit this small planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's future, and we are all mortal. And just to conclude, he asks in the speech, what kind of peace do we seek? Not a Pax Americana enforced on the world by American weapons of war. Not the peace of the grave or the security of the slave. I am talking about genuine peace, the kind of peace that makes life on Earth worth living the kind that enables men and nations to grow and to hope and to build a better life for their children not merely peace for americans but peace for all men and women not merely peace in our time but peace for all time i was mean, incredible
1: it gives you goosebumps of course I've, I've listened i don't know how many dozens or hundreds of times to the speech i've made my family <laughs> listen on so many occasions uh but the words are thrilling. The words are mesmerizing in their beauty. And Ted Sorensen has a big hand in that as well, but, and in their ability to make change. And I think one of the things that Kennedy also says in here, which is incredible, uh, is, uh, his advice on leadership, uh, and I don't have exactly the words here, but to paraphrase, he says, uh, by defining our goal more clearly, by making it seem more manageable and less remote, we help all people to see it, to draw hope from it, and to move irresistibly toward it. So the goal of peace, if made to be manageable, practical, like a treaty to stop uh, atomic uh, testing uh, of of uh, stop atmospheric testing of nuclear weapons is a practical, manageable step, and people draw hope from it. So the speech was so riveting and powerful. By the way, kept completely outside of the bureaucracy, it was essentially hidden. From the security apparatus, from the State Department, the CIA, even the White House, only Sorensen and Kennedy worked on it basically until the last moment. Then they said, I'm giving this. Uh, Kennedy said, I'm giving it. So it could not be vetoed by state or by the Defense Department or the National Security Council or anybody else. And he gave it. And what is amazing, absolutely amazing, is that Khrushchev heard it, was carried away summoned the u.s envoy kennedy's envoy to moscow april harriman and said this is the finest speech by an american president since fdr i want to make peace with your president the words were so powerful the motivation the ideas were so powerful Kennedy disseminated the speech through Pravda's Vestia online. Isn't that hilarious? Uh, Pravda, Pravda yeah,
0: reprinted it <laughs> exactly,
1: and uh, and broadcast the speech. and uh, And within a few weeks, they had signed the agreement. Within a few weeks, absolutely an astounding achievement. Then, then Kennedy, just to say he was also the grassroots politician. He was a, he was a political guy to the core. He went out to campaign for it. And so he took his tour around the United States, the joint chiefs. Oh, well, we don't know. This is, they come to testify in Congress and uh, try to knock down this agreement. And Kennedy carried the American public overwhelmingly and then won a decisive victory in the Senate 60 years ago, just now, for the ratification of this treaty. And this is uh, the time when we're talking is the time of the UN General Assembly. Kennedy went to tell the leaders what this meant in another completely magnificent address. And uh, he said, uh, this is not... This is not the end of conflict, but it is a ray of hope piercing through the clouds. And he ends his address to the world leaders assembled in front of him in the chamber of the UN General Assembly. Kennedy, having brought peace, brought hope, and all the world leaders assembled in front of him. And he says to them that Archimedes is said to have told his friends. Give me a place to stand and I can move the world. Fellow leaders of the world, let us see if we can take our stand here in this place, in this time, to move the world towards peace. And you just can't get better than that. The idealism, the hope, the practicality, and Kennedy infused the whole world with it, and then they killed him. And we've lost and I, it. We've lost it. And and they killed him because I'm personally convinced after having studied this in depth for decades now, and now we have the report completely debunking the Warren Commission with the magic bullet being no magic bullet at all, but a bullet that the Secret Service pulled out of the back of Kennedy's seat and put on the stretcher, debunking the entire forensic basis of the Warren Commission I'm pretty convinced that it was uh, rogue elements within the U.S. government itself. Well, that Alan Dulles. Alan Dulles, <laughs> can't CIA. Get more evil, can't get we more evil than that. Exactly. <laughs> it, we don't know exactly who, but this was a conspiracy, and it was a conspiracy against peace. And you know, it's, uh, our security state is in full force. Our president, in my view, is not in control. And in any event, has been a hardliner and a cold warrior, whatever you want to call it, uh, well past the Cold War. Uh, these neocons don't understand peace. They don't understand negotiation. They don't understand diplomacy. They don't understand the nuclear threat. And uh, one other uh, point, Chris, uh, of the speech that I think is so pertinent and completely neglected Kennedy says, above all, While defending our own vital interests, nuclear powers must avert those confrontations which bring an adversary to a choice of either a humiliating retreat or a nuclear war. To adopt that kind of course in the nuclear age would be evidence only of the bankruptcy of our policy or of a collective death wish for the world. And the U.S. has gone out to humiliate Putin and to defeat Putin. And this Russia has 6,000 nuclear weapons. What are we doing? What are we thinking? Of course, I take it a little bit, uh, even a step back. I think this is, uh, I call it the war of NATO enlargement because I think the entire war in Ukraine came because the United States so recklessly and imprudently kept pushing, pushing, pushing NATO enlargement. Russia saying, stop. It's a red line. Stop. And then not to Ukraine, for heaven's sake, not to Ukraine, our 2,300 kilometer border, not to surround us in the Black Sea. And the U.S. is deaf to this. And then trying to humiliate Putin and doing exactly the opposite of what Kennedy said. And I take it seriously when Kennedy says in that remark about not pushing a nuclear power to a corner. He says, above all, as if that's the synthesis of what he's learned from the Cuban Missile Crisis, above all, don't humiliate a nuclear adversary. And our people don't even know it. We don't have diplomats. And we don't have a president, in my view, that understands the job of keeping the foot on the brake. So it's a very dangerous time.
0: Right. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, David Hebton, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrisedges.substack.com.